Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back here with you again. I know that I'm right at home as when I came in and somebody greeted me, hey, K-Pow, and gave me a fist bump. That's how the kids call me, the teens that I work with at our church. Uh, I want to thank you for giving my two daughters, two of my daughters, Carolyn and Emily, had an opportunity to come and be here with you as you ministered to the children in this area at your vacation Bible school. And it was great because we did the exact same vacation Bible school that you did, so they came home ready to go. They were... They were ready and set to lead. And I want to let you know that the decorations that your church donated to our church across the river is now going to be donated to another church. So the work that you did is ministering not just to children here, but ministering to children in Warwick and are ministering to children in Carmel, New York as well. So you should really, I, I thank you so much for that. And it's, it's great to see the body of Christ coming together, work together uh, in unity. So I appreciate you so much. Well, I attend a lot of worship services over the course of the year. Many of us do. But I have to say that the one that I look forward to the most is a baptismal service. At a baptismal service, we uh, ask people to share their testimony before they step their foot into the water. And it is amazing to hear the variations in the different paths that people go on to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I lead a men's Bible study on Thursday nights at my church. We have about 20 to 25 guys who come regularly. Some of these men I've known for almost two decades. And once in a while, somebody, through the course of talking about the passage that we're talking about, will say something about their adolescence or their childhood that clearly had a tremendous impact on them. And I'm blown away that I never knew this about this person before. I've known them for so long. But there's a common theme among all of them. There's a common theme among all those testimonies and all those men who are at the Bible study that I lead is that every single one of them have had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And that personal encounter has come in a lot of different forms. For some, it has come through uh, an experience of some kind, maybe a tragedy that just drove them to their knees. Something tragic happened that altered the course of their life. For some, it was an experience that defied all logic and explanation. Others, it came from someone opening up the scriptures to them, sitting them down, building a relationship, and sharing about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and what it means for them. For other people, it is a long, slow process, where over the course of many years, God is working on their heart and revealing more and more of himself to them, over the course of the years. And some have had the pleasure of growing up in a Christian home. Growing up in a healthy church. Going to Sunday school. And coming to know Jesus as a young child. Something I thought that we would do over the next two weeks. You're stuck with me for the next two weeks. As Pastor Mike gets a break. So I thought that we would take a look at someone in the Bible. Who had their life dramatically changed. Because of an impersonal encounter with the risen Jesus. Now we look at this person and we know them from writing a large portion of the New Testament as Paul. But for the next two weeks, we're going to look at the same passage from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. And in this time, he is known as Saul. My hope for us today is three things. Number one is that if you have had a personal encounter with Jesus, my hope is that if we look at the life of Saul, you will recognize the things that have changed in your life. You'll have an opportunity to see the newness that a relationship with Jesus has brought to your life. The new thoughts, the new way of thinking, the new way of living that God has brought through that relationship. 
Secondly, my hope is that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you will seriously consider whether this is something that could change your life. If it's something that you've been on the fence about, maybe this kickstarts an opportunity for you to, to think more seriously about what it means to have a relationship with him. And then finally, I had something else written in my notes, but you couldn't have said it any better in your prayer chart that I was reading before the service, where you said that we are praying that we fan the flame of evangelistic zeal in the hearts of everyone. And my hope is that that was what will take place today. But before we get into our scripture, would you pray with me, please? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the power of your word. We thank you for its power to change even the hardest hearts. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who saves. And Lord, we ask now as we look into your word, as we look into the way that you radically altered the course of the life of Saul, Lord, we ask that you would help us to recognize that you are the one that changes hearts, Lord. And Lord, we just ask that you would remind us this morning of your goodness, your grace, your mercy and love, even to a man who was so hard-hearted and ruthless as Saul. And Lord, you would give us a passion, you would give us that zeal to share the good news with others. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So before we can get a full appreciation of what's going to take place in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31, we need some background information about Saul. We need to know where he came from so we can get a better idea of the transformation that has taken place in his life towards the end. So what we know about Saul's upbringing and his education is the fact that he was born in a city named Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. We know that his parents were Jewish, but we also know that they possessed something unique and different. And that is the fact that they possessed Roman citizenship, which is something that would come to help Saul in the future. It's something that was passed on to him. We know that at some point in the early childhood, Saul's family moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem. And when he was old enough, he started his study of the Hebrew scriptures under a very well-known and respected rabbi at the time. Now it's definitely possible that Saul was actually present. We don't know for certain if he was present at the trial of Stephen, who was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. But we, what we do know for certain is that Saul was present for and approved of the killing of Stephen, as you see in those two scripture passages, Acts 7.58 and Acts 8.1. But now we turn our attention to Acts chapter 9. And I would encourage you to follow along with me as we work slowly through this passage. It says in verses 1 through 3, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And what we see from this passage is that the stoning and the killing of Stephen sets Saul on a path, a desire to stomp out Christianity. These people are not called Christians at the time. They're called followers of the way. And many people believe that that goes back to what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Saul was not going to stop with the killing of Stephen and the scattering of Christians from Jerusalem out to the surrounding areas. So Saul goes to the high priest and asks for legal authority to head northeast to Damascus in Syria. And you can always test someone's resolve 
by how willing they are to overcome obstacles to carry out the task that's before them. It's one of the things I like about the Olympics every four years is we get to see those little montages about athletes where they go back to their hometown and they, they show the gym that they worked out in and they, uh, they talk to their parents who drove them to practice every day and they show the whole process, the years, the time, the money that was spent on coaching to get to the level that they got to. And let me bring it even closer to home. At my house, I could ask my children to clean up and sometimes... It's a very slow process. Sometimes children find other things to do. Sometimes they, they hide for a little while, right? And they were, they were putting a pair of socks away for 45 minutes while everybody else was working. But I'll tell you what, if I said at my house, hey, we're going to go out for ice cream, but we need to clean up first, get out of the way. I could just sit on the couch because it'll be done very quickly. But we can see this morning that Saul's resolve to eradicate Christians is very high based on what he is willing to do to gain the legal authority to arrest Christians. You see, Paul's a Pharisee. And we know that the two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, rarely saw eye to eye, although they did come together for something else, which was to get rid of Jesus. But it would not have been natural for Saul, a Pharisee, to approach the high priest, a Sadducee, for the legal authority to hunt down Christians. And this knowledge, which we don't get from a quick reading of the text, helps us to have a better appreciation of the depth of Saul's hatred for anyone who was a follower of Christ. But now that we have a better understanding of that hatred, and as we read more in our text, we see that Saul was almost completed the 175-mile journey to Damascus. But little did Saul know that everything in his life was about to change. In Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, you can follow along with me. It says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now I want to pause here for a moment, because when I was studying and reading this passage over and over again... Something struck me that was unique. And it may sound weird and silly to some, but I, I'm, I'm amazed that Saul's name was said twice. And the reason why that amazed me is because so many times I've read in the Old Testament that when God was calling somebody to something really big, when something really dramatic was happening, God called people's names twice. Can I give you a few examples? See, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, Abraham is about to sacrifice his only son on Mount Moriah. And we see that just as he's about to call, do this task, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham, and he calls his name twice. He says, Abraham, Abraham. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, Moses gets called by God from the burning bush. And as Moses goes over, God calls his name twice. He says, Moses, Moses. In Genesis 46, verse 2, Jacob is about to be told that he's going to be made into a great nation. It says, and God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And it just got chills when I read this interaction when they said, Saul, Saul. So I know this is a dramatic moment that is happening in his life. 
But we know that the light that Saul saw must have been very bright. Because he shares it in Acts chapter 22 verse 6. He shares it again in Acts chapter 26 verse 13. He says that it was about noon. And the light was blazing in the sky around him and the companions that he was traveling with. But I'd like you to think for a moment, what changed in Saul's life? That question, why are you persecuting me? This was the opposite of what Saul thought he was doing. Saul thought that he was going after those who were blaspheming God himself. Now my father-in-law is a very practical person. He's a very simple thinker, especially when it comes to projects around the house. It's amazing the things that he rigs up to fix things around his house. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it creates more problems than when he started. But it's usually done in a very cheap way. There was one time where he was visiting my house and I was taking him around, showing him all the projects that I had done, obviously trying to impress my father-in-law. And I brought him into the girls' room, a 12 by 12 room, and I tried to puff myself up and say how amazed I was that I was able to throw three children into that room that could live there. We had them stacked in bunk beds. We made great use of our space. And then I pointed to the ceiling fan on the ceiling and said, but the only thing I'm annoyed about is I put the ceiling fan in like three months ago and I'm going to have to change it out for a brand new light fixture because if I turn that fan on by accident and my daughter Emily sits up in bed, she's going to get it one right across the forehead with the fan blade. He looked at that fan blade for about two seconds and said, why don't you just take the blades off the fan and now you just keep the light fixture and somebody if it turns the fan on, it's really no big deal. And I felt stupid at that moment that I had never thought of that. But I'll tell you what, it helped me to change my perspective on a lot of things that I work on in my house that I try to think about instead of running out to the store and getting something new, how can I modify the existing thing that I have? It's something that stuck with me even to this day. But this change of thinking that I received is nothing compared to the change that Saul experienced in that moment. Although I'm convinced he didn't understand the enormity of it all in that second. But I kind of share a couple things with you that changed in the life of Saul in that moment. You see, Saul had a brand new faith. He had a brand new understanding and interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures that he was studying at length. He had a brand new view of redemption. He had a brand new view of the very people that he was persecuting. All of that changed because of this personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And that is what we get from a personal encounter with Jesus. Complete and total newness. What do we experience? We experience a new way of looking at the world that we live in. A new way of looking at the promises of fulfillment that this world brings, knowing that they will not last. We get a new view of ourselves, that we are loved by God. We get a new view of the future, one that is filled with hope and joy. We get a new view of others, that they are made in the image of God in need of his mercy and grace, just like us. And just as everything changed for Saul and that road to Damascus, personal encounters with Jesus Christ are changing the lives of people to this very day. So if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, I would ask you a couple questions. One, in what ways has Jesus brought this newness into your life? 
What new way of thinking do you have? What new way of living has he brought into your life? What has he done in you? And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would ask you a few questions as well. Perhaps you're looking for something new. Perhaps your way of thinking and your way of living has only brought pain and suffering. It has brought you to the same places over and over again, searching for fulfillment, but not finding it. At least not lasting fulfillment. Perhaps a personal encounter with Jesus Christ is what you have been longing for, but you just don't know it yet. And I want you to know that a personal encounter with Jesus, not a religion, not an institution or a building, can change your life forever in ways that you could not even begin to imagine, just as it did for Saul on that road to Damascus. If you're here today and something is stirring inside of you, I would love to talk to you after the service. I'd love to pray with you and talk about the way that Jesus has worked in my life and transformed my way of thinking. But as we continue our look at Acts 9, I'd like to keep reading in verse 7. It says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now I want you to consider the transformation that has taken place in Saul's life. That Saul is marching from Jerusalem to Damascus, a prideful and powerful man, armed with legal authority to arrest men and women and bring them back to Jerusalem. Anyone who associated themselves with Jesus. But we see a very different Saul entering Damascus, don't we? We see a man who is now helped by people, his companions who are traveling with him. We see a man going from being prideful and powerful to broken and helpless. That he cannot see and needs to be guided to his destination. And the passage says that Saul did not eat or drink anything for three days. And the important part of Saul's journey, this part, teaches us something about our relationship with Jesus and that is the fact that it involves surrender. The world that we live in places a very high value on independence. We like to feel like we are the ones who are providing for ourselves and our families. But time and time again, the facade of independence and control over our lives comes crashing down. Just as it did for Saul. And for some of us, in dramatic ways. We experience a major health problem that radically alters the course of our life or the quality of our life. We experience some kind of a loss, whether it's the loss of a loved one or a financial loss or a relationship loss. One that we expected would last forever. But the recognition that we are not in control is something that is difficult for us to understand and accept and I am confident that Saul in some way was experiencing this as he did not eat or drink for three days. His entire life had been turned upside down and he had to come to grips with a new reality that he is not in control. And one of the difficult aspects for many Christians in our, in our modern culture is to understand that we need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is Lord, it's not us. 
That he is in control and we are to submit to him as the king of our lives. And whatever independence we think we have is false. That we are wholly and completely dependent on him. And we are obviously not going to make it through all 31 verses this morning. And I would encourage you to read this passage through and come back again next week. Because we're going to be looking at more of this passage. But I would like to read a little bit more, verses 10 to 16, if you'd like to follow along with me. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with legal authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how how much he must suffer for my name. And it's that last verse, verse 16 that I'd like for us to really take a closer look at, is that Saul will be shown how much he must suffer for the name of Jesus. And if we follow Saul's journey after this interaction with the risen Jesus, we see many things happening. Like his life is threatened. People try to kill him numerous times. He's beaten, he's shipwrecked, he's arrested, and that's just the short version of a difficult life that he lived. And if we thought about surrendering to the lordship of Jesus being difficult, I'm sorry, there's something that's even more difficult to understand or to come to terms with in the Christian life is that being a disciple of Jesus Christ involves suffering. In Matthew 10, 38, Jesus uses some very intense language about those who follow him. He says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will will find it for my sake. Again, in uh, Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says it again. He told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Have you ever heard people use that phrase, well, this is, this is just my cross to bear, or that's their cross to bear. And usually they're referring to some kind of a situation, like a physical illness, a long-term physical illness that a person's dealing with. A broken relationship that is just a strain on them. Uh, a, a difficult job that they have, that they're having a lot of stress and anxiety with. Please know that that's not what Jesus is talking about In this passage, that carrying your cross in Jesus' day did not involve meeting having a hard time or a difficult relationship. It meant one thing, death. Jesus is talking about death to self. He's talking about person being willing to lay down their own life in order to be his follower. It involves potentially laying down possessions, hopes, dreams, or even your physical body to be committed to and to follow your Lord Jesus. It involves laying aside what I believe to be the biggest idol of our time. Lay aside my own comfort to be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. 
And some may say, well, Kevin, you're really making this sound appealing, right? Let's sign up to suffer. Where do I sign up, right? But I would like to read another passage for you from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood around the world. Listen to this part that Peter says. He says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So are you willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Are you willing to put yourself intentionally in an uncomfortable situation in order to align yourself with Jesus and to show yourself to be one of his followers? Are you willing to stand for the truth of God's word in a culture that says each person can own their own variation of the truth? Are you willing to put yourself aside and put Jesus first? Before we pray and close the message, I would ask you to consider one more aspect of the conversion of Saul that we'll look at today. And again, there's more to come next week. But many people that I talk to, I almost talk to people on a daily basis who are saddened and angered by the direction of the world that we are living in. Even the United States of America. I have conversations with people about government officials, about, um, about the moral decay of the society that we are living, the departure away from the truth of God's word, and they are greatly discouraged. They have family members that they have been ministering to for years. They have shared Jesus with co-workers. Um, they even have spouses that they have been ministering to and loving on for years who want nothing to do with hearing any more about God. I want to remind you this morning that the conversion of Saul from Acts chapter 9 should remind us that no one, no one is too far away for God to reach. Someone would argue that Saul couldn't be much further away. Do you hear the question that Jesus asked Saul? He says, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Or why are you persecuting the church? He said, why are you persecuting me. Can you get much farther away from God when you're persecuting his son Jesus? But God is not done with Saul. God has a plan to change Saul's life and to put him on a new path. One that does not involve arresting followers of the way or followers of Jesus, but encouraging people to go in his direction. And the point that I am making is this. Now is not the time to be discouraged now is not the time to view a person as a lost cause. Because in the eyes of God, there is no such thing. If God had the power to transform the life of someone like Saul, become a follower of Jesus on fire for him, we should never, ever consider someone too far gone. Now is not the time for us to make a decision on our own that someone has walked too far away. Now is the time for us to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. To bring a message of love and joy into a culture full of hatred and violence. Now is the time for all of us to be willing to be used by God in any way that is needed. Even if that involves suffering 
to help people recognize their need for a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much again for the power of your word. Lord, we thank you that you are the one that changes hearts, that you changed the heart of Saul on that day. Lord, you are still doing it to this day. Lord, as, as empires have risen and fallen, as they have crumbled, your word has remained the same. That you are still changing lives to this very day. And Lord, I, I ask that you would strengthen those who are here, who are followers of Jesus Christ. That you would encourage them. That you would give them that passion and that zeal. Lord, that you would put aside all discouragement that they are feeling because they haven't seen the fruit of their labor. But Lord, you have the power to use us. And Lord, we ask that you would use us as followers of Christ. Lord, I pray for those who have not made that decision to be followers of Jesus. Lord, I, I ask that you would work on their heart today. Lord, help them to recognize that they have gone to the same places over and over again to seek fulfillment, but it never lasts. Lord, help us to recognize that true fulfillment comes through a relationship with your son, Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would give us that passion. That desire to stand for truth. Not my version of the truth, but to stand for the truth of your word in a culture that desperately needs it. And we just pray these things in your name. Amen.